Good morning. Good morning. Would you please um, check to make sure that your cell phone is in the off position? Um, I always try to acknowledge the people who are at the back of the room who make this possible. Lauren Cross and William Budge is not here today, but all the people back there. But I want to give a special shout out today to Olivia. This is her last Sunday here. Um, thank you. Olivia introduced me to Wordle, <laughs> and uh, we have now Wordle family, Wordle, you have those going on? It's, it's, it's terrible. It's designed to cause family members to hate each other. So, uh, But anyway, Olivia is going to be going to um, a country whose um, capital is the fastest growing in population of any capital city in the world. She's going to Ireland, where uh, the capital city is Dublin every day. I dare you to go to a pub over there and tell that and see if they will keep you. But anyway, thank you. Thank all of you for being here. So I have a thanks to, I, I lost my singing bowl somewhere. I mean, the one that I was using here. And thanks to uh, Wayne and Callista, we have a new one, which we're, in, we're inaugurating today. It's fragile. It is glass. So we're going to try it to... Uh, See, what's the worst thing that could happen? I could hit it too hard. That's a... So the Buddhists do not uh, ring the bowl. They don't ring. Oh, I hope that didn't hurt. The, the Buddhists, um, in, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, or said, he's deceased, they invite the bowl to ring. So we'll see. Thank you very much. That's our way to, as you know, um, begin in silence. Uh, do what you need to do to be here. Maybe put both feet on the floor and take a deep breath. And um, I like to acknowledge the gratitude that, uh, with gratitude, everything that had to happen for us to, to be here. We want to be in this place to be not only present, but to be open and awake. And my earnest hope is that you find what you're looking for in this time today. 
So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Okay. Eureka. Get your wheels rolling in your brain. You know who first said this. Eureka means I found it. And uh, the guy who said that, according to tradition, is a guy named Archimedes, who jumped out of his bathtub and ran down the streets of Syracuse in Greece without any clothes on because he had just discovered, or it had occurred to him, because his, he was in a bathtub, that a body um, uh, in water displaces the amount uh, of something that he could thereby measure and gain the density of the object that was in water. It was a great discovery. And the legend is that it had something to do with uh, the crown of the king, but we don't really know about that. He was a smart guy. He is the one who allegedly said, if you give me a lever and a place to stand, I can move the world. So that's what this talk is about today. It's about all of these things. It's about um, a place to stand. It's about a lever to move the world, at least the world that we think we inhabit. And I'm calling our time traction, transcendence, and a place to stand. I want to begin with traction. So we got this new theme called... Um, making sacred the already sacred journey. And if we're going to make any progress on this journey, we need traction. We need a place to stand. Now, the, the word traction originally meant to pull something. It's the word that we get our word tractor from. But eventually it came to mean having a place to stand from which you could be able to pull something. I have traction under my feet to um, pull something. So the opposite of traction would be distraction, or it would be uh, moving on a slippery slope, which is where we are in our culture. Andrej Ibsen, the Norwegian playwright, is considered the father of realism, and he is the first as far as I can discern, who wrote, a thousand words leave not the same deep impression as does a single deed. And after his death, this quote was plagiarized, paraphrased into the proverb we now know as, a picture is worth a thousand words. However, I feel the need to point out that it takes words to say that. Okay. Nonetheless, the phrase is generally attributed to an advertising agent, uh, an executive by the name of Fred Barnard. He wrote for a trade journal, and he was promoting the use of images that would be put on the side of railway cars and uh, trolleys, um, I think in, in Chicago. Um, you know that I love words and word sleuthing, but the phrase, a picture's worth a thousand words, you can find some version of that going back to Leonardo da Vinci, Napoleon, 
all the way back to Confucius. But the fact is that there are some things that only a photo or a cartoon can convey. I'm going to submit some examples. Now, if we're talking about distraction, we're talking about not paying attention. Anybody need this explained to them? <laughs> this is, I think, I have, I've had this one for years. It is one of my favorites. <laughs> Some of them are sadder than others. Oh, I love this one. I'm also very indebted to the device that I carry, um, but there's now research that shows, and I don't know what I did with mine. <laughs> it's somewhere back there. Um, I guess I put it in my case. Because there's some research that shows that if you, like, um, go out to a restaurant or someplace and you just put your cell phone down on the table, it's as distracting as if you were taking calls. This is kind of how we have become. Great cartoon. <clears throat> so we live in a neighborhood where people walk and jog in front of our house and I kid you not 98% of the people who go by in front of our house are like this So one of the reasons I wanted to begin this new theme of making sacred the already sacred journey is that we live in a time and a culture where so much is desecrated. And I got that phrase from the, the, the poet that I'll mention. It's on the, the, the head of the website now with the new artwork we have. We desecrate and fail to realize that we are in the heart of sacred mystery, and the sacred mystery seeks to find expression through us. So I want, to, I want today to be about two things. I want to be about some general rules that we're going to have about this journey we're taking, uh, and uh, some essential equipment that you will need to bring along on the journey. And then I want to tell you a story. So the first time we rafted the Grand Canyon, and we've now done that three times. Um, <clears throat> it's just because I am married to a woman who is fearless and thinks that jumping off 40 feet cliffs into water is fun. Um, before we did that for the first time, we talked to a bunch of people who'd taken that trip before. 
and asked them what they wished they had known before they had taken that trip so we could learn from them. And boy, were we glad we did that because we learned a lot of really valuable things about things to take on a rafting trip through the Grand Canyon and things not to take, things not to worry about. One of the most valuable things that we were advised to take is a solar shower, which is a plastic bag about so big that you fill up with river water. <clears throat> it's got a black reflective side on one side so that when you put it on the raft in the sun, it absorbs the sun rays and the water gets really hot in there. So at the end of a long, sandy, dirty, hot, sweaty, cold, messy day, you can hang this thing or have somebody hold it while you shower down in a hot shower at night. It really was a wonderful thing to do. So uh, that's what I want to try to give you some things about. <coughs> Pardon me. Of course, the first rule is that you have to be present. In order to do the opposite of distracted, we have to just show up, which is much of life. You've got to be present to win. And by present, I don't mean just be here physically, although that's very helpful, I think. It's easy. I think this works better for those of you who are watching online, and there are a lot of you according to analytics. I'm glad you're there. If you're within a 30-mile radius of this place, I encourage you to show up because being in the room is different energy. It's just different energy. Um, and we're also going to keep in mind all those, those three things, uh, core teachings and values of Jesus of love, honesty, and freedom. I'm not going to elaborate on those today, but I want to keep them in front of us. And also, I want to introduce and talk a lot about, as we go forward, the whole matter of non-duality. We'll be talking a lot about that uh, next week. We could spend this whole class talking about that today. But in street language, non-duality means getting your stuff together. In, in psychological lingo, the word that's in Jungian psychology for uh, non-duality is integration. In Buddhism, it's simply called non-dual mind. But uh, it, it, integration is uh, a word that we get from the word integer, whole, one, integration, being whole. So non-duality splits things and people, and we are in, immersed in a sea of non-dual anger and hostility in our culture today. Uh, non-duality is mentally fuzzy, it's simplistic thinking, it's false assumptions, as well as just outright lies and unprovable ideas. I will give you a simple, horrible example. Somebody sent me a letter this week, this is not my notes, Somebody sent me a letter this week that they had gotten from one of the members of a church in the United Methodist Church that is seeking to move itself from the United Methodist Church. And you know that that's all about one clause in the Book of Discipline about full inclusion of all people who, whatever their sexual orientation is in the church. Right? That, that's what that's about. The letter started out, did you know? that those in the, who, who wish to remain in the United Methodist Church are seeking to change the language of the liturgy and they want to take the Our Father out of the Lord's Prayer. And that's as dishonest as it can be. 
But that's the story that's out there. And where did it come from? The desire on the part of some people to have, not to change the Lord's Prayer or to change the Apostles' Creed. I've been trying to get us to use another creed for 20 years. But um, the desire that you will find in any institution of higher education or any government institution to have more inclusive language all through our documents. That's all. But it got to mean, oh, they're going to change the Lord's Prayer. All religious dogma. And, and I, I will say that religious dogma, progressive or conservative, is dangerous stuff. Dogma is dangerous. We want to find a faith without dogma. So uh, dualistic thinking goes for dogma and simplistic answers. And it closes the door to wisdom and truth. And over a period of time, it increases intolerance, it increases tribalism, and, and uh, exclusivity. So our goal and our hope is, is that we go along this journey of making the already sacred journey sacred, that we ourselves will become more conscious, that we will let go of the chatter in our heads, that we will be more open to new ideas, that we will... Take off our ego mask that will be open to love, truth, and freedom and uh, the, because these are the things that are already buried in our hearts. So what I want to do today is to introduce to you a story. It's an old story. It's from the 11th century. It's one that likely in one form or another you have already heard. Um, it is the, the, the story, the interpretation of which is one of the very first things that I got from a teacher of mine whose name is Robert Johnson. And by the way, I'm going to put in the summary that goes out for this class the obituary uh, that went with Robert's death. I really encourage you to read it. It's very inspiring. Robert Johnson has a very interesting history um, he was, of course, he got introduced to Carl Jung. Carl Jung's wife was actually Robert's analyst, but he, Robert had such a powerful dream that when he told his analyst, Jung's wife, about the dream, Jung's wife took Robert to Carl Jung, and they had sessions together. And get this, during one of those sessions, out of that dream, Carl Jung said to Robert Johnson, you should never marry. <laughs> and he didn't. Now, I cannot imagine as a therapist ever saying something like that to somebody, <laughs> or being a client of some therapist having that said to me, but it happened, and in the last several years of his life, Robert actually entered a Benedictine monastery. He didn't stay until his death, but he was there for several years. He's a most interesting man, and, and if you want to know more about him, here's another book recommendation. Um, Balancing Heaven and Earth is, the, is his biography. Um, he kind of co-authored it. He had help in writing it. But it's a wonderful book about Robert and, and his life. I had seen him, known him, heard him lecture, and never knew until I read this book 
that he, when he was somewhere in his teens, his mother and father had divorced, lived in Portland, Oregon. He was going from one place to another, walking between his parents' house, and a car lost control, ran up on the sidewalk, pinned him against a brick wall, and he, in the process, after that, he had um, one of his legs amputated below the knee. I didn't know that. He never said anything about that. But what made it such a great story is that up until that moment, his aspiration was he wanted to be a church organist. And that got, got in the way. You know, he didn't have a leg to stand on for that. That's, that's a... Oh, sorry about that. Robert loved to tell stories. He loved to tell myths. He loved to teach from them, as a matter of fact. Most of his early writings are enlargements of myths. His first book called He is an enlargement on the story I want to tell you today. Um, he also told, wrote a book called we, he, She, We. Ecstasy is based on the god Pan. I mean, a, a number of these books that he wrote. Uh, in this biography of his, he tells the story of one two-man, which is a Native American story that takes a, a chapter or so to take and tell, much too long to do in here. And uh, then I heard him, uh, through a week of lectures, tell the ox herding pictures. Any of you know about the ox herding pictures? Nobody? You know about them? Uh, I've only, it's a teaching I've only done twice in my life, but uh, it's his stuff. I got, it was transmitted to me and I transmitted it in workshops or seminars because it takes a long time to do with the wonderful thing. Maybe we should have a retreat sometime and, and do that. So we need a new story. And um, this is, you know, sometimes I have to go back to get new stories. So we need a story that will lead us to some kind of security in this un insecure world and one that will lead to the healing of our many, many wounds. And so I want to submit a narrative for your consideration called the Grail Story. I'm going to tell the story um, two more times. We'll deal with this next week and probably the week after. Um, so this is one version. You'll hear a slightly different version uh, next week. In the center of time and space, there lived a king in a castle. His name was Arthur. He had been mortally wounded. He never left his bedchamber. He had fallen under an evil spell. He no longer cared a thing about the well-being of his people or his lands. All of his kingdom was slowly wasting away, dying, cattle, crops, everything. Everyone's soul seemed to be suspended. People went about their daily tasks lethargically as if they were all in a trance. They had lost all sense of purpose. There's a cottage in the woods not far from the castle. In it lives a young man and his mother. The young man, whose name is Parsifal, has just come of age. While walking through the forest one day, he encounters a group of the knight of the king's knights riding along the road. He's awestruck about their shining armor and appearance, so much so that he immediately wants to become one of them and appear as they appeared. Over the objections of his very strict mother, he set off for the castle to see how to become such a knight. 
When he arrived at the castle, he was struck dumb. Instead of the glorious Camelot he had expected, he found himself in the middle of a wasteland. Everything was sterile. He discovered that the king had been wounded in the groin. That is, he had lost the power of regeneration. The king's attendants moved about their listless stupor, did nothing about this terrible situation that had befallen them. Parsifal was given a horse and weapons so he could battle with the formidable knight who had beaten all the knights, king's knights, even the best of them. Astonishingly, Parsifal won, and he took the armor of the fearsome foe. Some said it was mere luck that he had won. Others said the young man's innocence had conferred a divine blessing and strength upon him. Parsifal desperately wanted to help his king, but he, like all the others, had no answers as to how to deal with the wound. His mind was filled with questions. These two, like his newfound strength, flowed from the gift of his innocence. But he dammed them up inside of himself because he remembered his mother's constant teaching of not embarrassing people by asking questions. Instead, Parsifal left the court and castle on a quest for the Holy Grail. He believed that if he could find this chalice that was allegedly used at the Last Supper Jesus had with his disciples and bring it back to the castle, the king would be healed and the kingdom would be restored to its former grandeur. Parsifal ventured down many a blind path and false trail in his search. Finally, he glimpsed the grail and, as a result, felt the king's pain in his own heart. He rode his magnificent white charger back to the king's castle. He rushed to the king, who by this time was at death's door with compassion in his heart. He overcame his previous hesitancy and knelt beside his monarch. A question rose to his lips, what ails thee? Or where do you hurt? There was a blinding flash of light. In an instant, the spell was broken. The king's health was restored. The land and all its inhabitants, the animals and the crops, the dried up streams and wells were all renewed. The king and all the other members of his court returned to Parsifal, and in honoring him, the king gave this toast. If you falter, never forget that every day holds the promise of a new redemption. Healing came to the king, who is an archetypical symbol of being centered and whole because the right question was put to him. It's a great story. So questions, which is what we're going to start with at the beginning of our time next week. Questions are dangerous. You know? I mean, serious questions. They can take you right up to the edge and sometimes right over. The story of Parsifal of the Grail, it's an unfinished poem, which comes from French, uh, the country of France. Uh, it's dated somewhere in the middle or late 1100s. It's got several variations. You've just heard one of them. <clears throat> You'll have a slightly different one next week. 
there, there have been at least four distinct endings written for the Parsifal story. Um, and I'll tell you a very, when we are back next week, a very interesting exchange that went on between Carl Jung and his wife about this, this particular story because she became an, an authority on it. So um, it's, a, it's a great, um, great story. In the original story, it's not called the quest for the Holy Grail. It's just called the quest for the Grail. The word holy is not in it. So you can go to the Internet. And you can Google Parsifal, P-A-R-C-I-V-E-L, look up the, or the quest for the grail, the grail quest, and you can find the story and its variations, all the things that it has given birth to, music, operas, um, plays, movies, all this sort of stuff. Great stories. This is what came out of the literary um, renaissance following the Middle Ages. Um, as I said, I got my first understanding of this story from Robert Johnson, and then he wrote it up in this book. Um, this is the first book that Robert ever wrote, and it's a very readable, readable book. Now, I want to get on the table something right away. Um, I'm a white male. As a matter of fact, I've been trying to, because I think language is so important, I've been trying to refer to myself as a white American, okay? Because we refer to other people as African American and Chinese American and Latin American and all that, so I just thought I would want to do this. Somebody, I, I, this story was created by a male. It's about a male. It was transmitted to me by mail, although Robert's got a soul of a woman, I had a soul of a woman, which is one of the ways I kind of understand Jesus is a, in a male body but with a woman's soul. Because uh, we need that sacred feminine because without it, we walk as a culture on one leg, which is not very efficient. So I just want to get that on the table, all that masculine stuff, because that's part of our problem. And it will be addressed in a few weeks when Holly and I are co-teaching when we talk about a female myth that has the same kind of power in communication as the Parsifal myth. Because it's the white male patriarchy um, thing that's got us in so much trouble. I'm going to say about that in a minute. When I look at what's going on in um, so-called organized evangelical Christianity, what I see is a dualistic drive to hammer into place the faith of our fathers. And what I want to do is to create a dynamic, life-transforming, nurturing faith for our children, for the future, not back there. Uh, maybe it would be helpful if, uh, before going further, I define what an archetype is and how it functions for us. Um, one definition of an archetype is generally the original model from which something is developed or made. In literary criticism, it's those images, figures, character types, settings, and story patterns that, according to Carl Jung, are universally shared by people across all cultures. Now, usually we inherit from our culture 
definitions or, uh, or understandings about certain key things. There is an understanding in our culture about what it means to be a man. Some of us grew up with those lessons being taught to us. Men don't cry, for example. Uh, women, women are tough. Uh, men are tough. Women are soft. Actually, the message in our culture is um, women are objects. That's the, that's the archetype that's communicated in our culture. Men are in charge. Women should be subservient. That is in the conservative evangelical Christian movement growing what's called the subservient wife syndrome. I've been thinking about moving over there to just... <laughs> Our culture has mythic stories that we adhere to. The Adam and Eve story has shaped our culture. You work hard. You're driven from the garden. You have to work hard in order to make it. There's something wrong with you. You fall into sin. And you need this product to correct that what's wrong with you. Or in, <clears throat> in uh, religious language, you, you need to be saved. And I have the secret of salvation if you just join my group. I've been trying to think about a way to, to illustrate how this functions. You, you might remember some of you from high school physics class when the physics teacher would try to explain magnetic polarities. And one of the things that a teacher did in my high school was that he took a white sheet, big white sheet of paper and sprinkled iron filings on top of it, right? And then he held a magnet under the piece of paper and the iron filings moved around to configure with the magnetic field. Okay? <clears throat> this is how an archetype functions. The archetype is the magnet that gives shape to things that are on top of it. Okay? It's usually unconscious, <clears throat> but it has a very powerful influence on us. And uh, the archetypical images and stories, they can be positive and life-giving, or they can be negative and destructive. Now, this country, indeed much of the Western world, is in, some in the grips of some really powerful negative archetypes. And the most negative and powerful is that of white male patriarchy. And put another way, um, this country's in trouble because men are in trouble. I have spent most of my professional life in psychology working with men. And um, I would say that most of the men that I have worked with, and this is, I own this as projection. You know, we do this work to solve our own neuroses, right? I'm serious. And I, I, I mean, I don't do supervision of clergy or therapists anymore, but when I did, one of the first things I would do is to ask clergy, what's the neurosis that got you in this business? You need to know, because if you don't know, it will run you. If you do know and can get it out in front of you, you have more control over its power over you. Does that make sense? I mean, what could be more arrogant than to think you speak for God? 
So I would say that, that the male archetype in, in, in our culture, that need, the things that need to be addressed by, given for men in American culture involve four things. The first of those is love, <clears throat> because men easily confuse sex and sexuality with love. I cannot tell you how many men that I have seen over the years who have never, never heard their father say, I love you. They have never been hugged physically by their father, never been embraced, never been cuddled by their dad. Because that is not something men did. Men are hesitant to express affection to other men because it stirs up all that homophobic stuff. And yet men are dying for intimacy and contact and touch and just to be held. You need seven hugs a day. <clears throat> if you're not getting them, ask for them. <clears throat> Men need to be, uh, a, the male archetype needs to be addressed around the issue of power. Because in our culture, we confuse strength with power. And the, the, the prime example, and it attracts us all, is what you'll see on TV this afternoon. Professional football. Guys just slaughtering each other. And so now look at that. I wonder, how do you survive that? It's just so thing. But when you turn it upside down, I mean, in our culture, we have this belief in redemptive violence. The gun industry is marketed, owned, and run by males. The mass shootings are done by men. Boys who have not made the transition into manhood. The other issue would be integrity, and by this I mean certainly honesty and truth-telling, but even more than that, as I said, the word integrity comes from integer meaning whole or complete. And it is in bringing to light the unrecognized, denied, repressed aspects of ourselves that we experience healing. One of my favorite passages in the Gospel of John uh, is um, the, the Gospel of Thomas is that if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. But if you don't bring forth what is within you, what you fail to bring forth will destroy you. It's those unrecognized things that we need to work on. And then, of course, there is the, the issue of purpose or meaning. Why are you here? What's your life about? Decades ago, when I was in training and seeing patients in a the hospital, there was a man there because of an unwise way of dealing with a personal matter who said to me, a man's worth is only what he can prove on paper, meaning how much money he has. Now, I know that there is not a person in this class who does not know the primary purpose of life. So I'm not going to state it. You just forgot, right? The primary purpose of life for those of us who are past the survival issues is a commitment to growth. Growth in intellectual, psychological, spiritual, arenas that
that we are always growing in freedom and love and honesty, those things. That's what we're here for. And then to contribute that growth to the places where we live out our lives. That's what life is about. Now, I'm not going to elaborate on any more of these today. I just wanted to give this as an example of the power of unconscious archetypes. Because when an archetype has not gone well, when it lives in the shadow, it can be very, very destructive. So the grail story can be an archetype of healing and wholeness. And I want to use aspects of the grail story for the next couple of weeks to uh, try to awaken some of the things that may be asleep in us, uh, develop some awareness so that we can draw on that imagery and strength as we continue to make the sacred journey sacred. Uh, this story about Parsifal, it started out, according to the scholars, as a story about a simpleton whose name was Parsifal. And then he got transformed over a period of time into this mystical religious quest that inevitably addresses the problems that we have in our culture right now. So I can't possibly uh, do it story do it justice in one one time. The Grail is a life-preserving, life-giving vessel. It is guarded in a place that is difficult to find. The grail is you, yourself, your true self. The kingdom is dying and his kingdom is devastated. That seems to fit, doesn't it? Our culture. The king can only be restored to health if a knight of a certain character love, honesty, freedom can find the castle can see what is going on there and then can ask the proper question. Where do you hurt? In the story, Parsifal thinks himself up for the task. He finds the castle of the king, but he fails to ask the right question. Now, we're going to go into this much more detail as we go along, but, but the castle, of course, is a symbol of the psyche. The psyche is everything about you that isn't physical. So it's the conscious, it's the unconscious, it's the ego, it's the various archetypes that we have, it's the various identities, the alter egos, all the things that pop up in our dreams, uh, everything about you that's there. And the grail, as I said, is what you can call the true self. It's how, it's how Jesus saw people. Um, Jesus was forever looking at people and not allowing them to think what, what they thought defined them, defined them. Does that make sense? He, di he, he didn't do that. He looked past people's 
poverty. He looked past their physical limitations and, and saw what was beyond that. And he said to them that if you have faith in the you that I see and live that, you'll be complete. You're, whole, you're already whole. You'll be, you'll be that. And that, I think, is how, how he healed people. So the king is sick because he has failed to integrate his shadow. And uh, if you do go on the internet and you read another version of the story, you'll find that King Arthur is referred to in other versions as the Fisher King. And what that means is that he went fishing. That's how he spent his time. He couldn't find anything better to do, so he sat on the side of a lake or pond or whatever with a fishing pole in his hand. That's why he's called the Fisher King. He'd failed to integrate individually what needed to be integrated for the well-being of the collective. The collective is in trouble because individuals are in trouble. And I saw a t-shirt today, that I, I mean the other day, that I haven't bought, but I need to. It said, the problem with political jokes is that they get elected. <laughs> the collective is in trouble because individuals are in trouble and then so, for some reason, we lift those individuals into a place of leadership where then they don't do what's good for the kingdom. Now, <clears throat> I know uh, that uh, I mention a lot of books in my teaching. I know I do that. If you get the book He, it's not in any form that I could find, but you can get a copy of it. I want to just warn you that this is a very readable book, but it's not meant for group discussion. It's a book that you should read with a journal beside the book because it's, a, it's very much about an individual thing. It's a great book for that thing. Raise questions for yourself. The work of integration is something we have to do solo. Um, as one of my supervisors put it succinctly, no one can take a bath for you. And just reading a book about swimming won't teach you how to swim. You have to get in the water to do that. So in the story, when the knights of King Arthur's court had seen an apparition of the grail and determined, let's go get that thing. Let's go out together. So they did. They all rode out together according to the story. And they come to a forest. And they say, we got to go into the forest to get to the castle. And they'd stop at the edge of the forest because they realized it would not look good if they all went in there together. So in the Grail story, that it is said that each must go alone into the forest, entering a place of one's own choosing. It's your journey. Individuation is not a group activity, though... We bring to the collective what we can when we make that journey. You have to do it by yourself. It's called the hero's journey. That's what Joseph Campbell called it. And by the way, the word hero and the word heresy and the word heretic all come from the same root. The, the root word from which those three words come means to choose. So a hero is one who chooses. A heretic is one who chooses. 
A hero chooses the questions of her or his life and therefore the quest that person chooses to live. I don't remember where I got this, but the word question can be hyphenated to read the quest I own. Now, <clears throat> I don't know whether it's helpful to hear this from a spiritual teacher or not, but the longer that I have done my own spiritual work, um, I have come to see that there are fewer and fewer and fewer answers. What I have discovered is that there are answering persons. Now, this is very hard for the ego because the ego thrives on being right and in control and being so sure. And the ego will settle for satisfying answers even if they're false. rather than remain on the quest. But until the truth is found and experienced, the king and the kingdom remain ill and barren. So um, I, I love the fact that in, in the Jesus story, um, Jesus didn't answer questions. He asked a lot of questions. And the questions that Jesus asked um, were designed to reposition people, that is to lift them up from where they thought they stood and put them down somewhere else. The questions he asked, the stories he told, the deeds he did were designed to make people aware of their unconscious biases to break them out of their dualistic mindset, to challenge their images of God and of the world, and to present to them, that is, to us, new and creative possibilities. That's why I said last week um, that we were going to be using the teachings of Jesus as a roadmap after we finish with this Parsifal story for guiding us on this making sacred the already sacred journey. So, traction, tradition, transcendence, and a place to stand. Traction is the opposite of being distracted. You need, God forgive me that I have not mentioned this today. <laughs> you need a daily spiritual practice. The practice is... It's called a practice because it's like practicing an etude on a piano. You practice an etude so you can play the piano. You do a spiritual practice so you can play in the world. That makes sense? You practice being present, whatever your mantra is, so you can take that in the world and embody it and be less reactive to be more present, more loving, more truthful, freer in the world. And you can't do this just by hearing me talk about it. I'm glad you're here. Please come back. But this is not enough. There's nothing in our culture that encourages the kind of thing that I'm teaching. You've got to work for this.
choosing this is to be a heretic. Now, that will appeal to some of you. So, going against the grain. It means entering the dark woods. We have to practice loving kindness and compassion, first of all, for ourselves. And when, you, when people first hear this, they think, oh, that's so selfish. No, it's not. If I don't have loving kindness and compassion for myself, I cannot offer that to someone else. And, and uh, I, I, this is what I think leads us, and although lead is not the right word, lead, by lead I mean it causes us to wake up to um, the fact that we live our heart in, in the heart of grace, and our purpose is to express that. So um, let, me see if, <laughs> let me see if I can be as unclear about this as possible. We are not searching. So I'm going to use the theme, we're on a path of making the sacred already sacred, but we're not really searching. We've already been found. Our work is to realize that. We have the grail in our hands. It is made up of such beautiful, precious metals and jewels, peace, love, joy, humility, and at the same time, non-dually, we're on a quest. And our quest is to go out into an ailing world and ask people, where do you hurt? Now, we're going to return to this story next week, but I want to give you a heads up. This story does not have a happy ending. I mean, we live in a culture that wants to seduce us into the story that says, and they all lived happily ever after. And it's not this story. That is the illusion of optimism. That's fundamentalism's big promise, whether politically or religiously. We got the answer. The faith of Jesus is not optimistic. It is hopeful. There's a huge difference between optimism and hope. For example, from the evidence that I'm seeing in the arena of climate change, we don't have much reason to be optimistic. Optimism, or the lack of it, is about the future that's coming. And... I'm not disregarding the future, but I want to be clear. The teachings of Jesus are not about the future. The teachings of Jesus are about the people who are living into the future. I'm not saying that we should not have awareness of what's down the road, but the real question of and focus on spiritual work is who are we who are approaching the future? If the future were a person, okay, just imagine, future is a person, would the future be waiting patiently at home for you, looking forward for you to show up because they know they're going to get love and care and attention and appreciation? 
Or would the future fear your coming because they're going to feel you neglect her? That's a good question. It's a good quest to be on. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch yourself, and I will see you here next Sunday. Thank you. Thank <clears throat> you.